0: Beginning in March 2020, just over three years ago, public health officials locked this country down. One man talked back, arguing that public health officials were getting the fight against COVID all wrong. That got him into trouble, and he's still in trouble today. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya came to Stanford University at the age of 17 and has never left. In addition to his undergraduate degree, Dr. Bhattacharya earned a doctorate from the Stanford Economics Department and an MD from Stanford Medical School. Dr. Bhattacharya is now a professor of medicine at Stanford and a fellow at the Hoover Institution. Jay is also one of the three authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. I'm going to quote that declaration. We have grave concerns, Jay and his two co-authors wrote in that October 2020 document, we have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies. Jay Bhattacharya, welcome. Thank you. Jay, let's begin with a clip from your last appearance on this program which took place on October 13, 2021. My question to you was, what needs to happen?
1: I mean, I I think the first thing that has to happen is that public health should apologize. The the public health establishment in the United States and the world has failed the public.
0: The first thing that has to happen is that public health should apologize. Dr. Anthony Fauci now retired, but during the lockdown, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Has he apologized? No. Dr. Francis Collins, again now retired, but during the lockdown director of National Institutes of Health, has Dr. Collins apologized?
1: No, unfortunately.
0: Federal public health officials, state public health officials, county public health officials, put them all together and you get several thousand public health officials in this country who are responsible for locking counties down, states down, the country down. As far as you're aware, has any of them apologized?
1: I think very, very few have acknowledged any errors at all. All right. Um, what we know now.
0: Last year, Johns Hopkins performed a survey of the literature on lockdowns. Def, uh, we're defining lockdowns here as government mandates, quote, such as policies that limit internal movement, close schools and businesses, and ban international travel. Close quote. The conclusion of the Johns Hopkins study that, on average, lockdowns caused a reduction in COVID deaths of only two tenths of one. Does that sound right? You read all of these things so you understand it in ways that I couldn't begin to, but does that conclusion sound about right? And if the benefit of locking down the country was a reduction in COVID deaths of two-tenths of one percent, what do we know now about the costs?
1: So, Peter, it is absolutely right. I don't know the specific number, but the, the, the magnitude of the effect of the protective effect of the lockdowns if it's, if, it's, if, it's, if it's not zero, it's very, very close to zero. Uh, and this it's for a very simple reason, you can see why it's right. The lockdowns, if they were to benefit anybody, they were to, it benefited members of the, the laptop class who actually had the wherewithal to, to stay home, stay safe, uh, while the rest of the population served them. Our societies are, inher- are deeply unequal. It's a very small fraction of the world population that actually could stay home and stay safe. And so when the lockdowns happened, uh, a very large number of people essentially were left on the outside. They had to work to feed their families, to take care of, t- to take care of their, their elderly parents or whatnot. Um, and that meant that the lockdowns had no chance of actually working. The people that conceived the lockdowns had an a, a, a extent of naivete about how societies work that it just boggles the mind. Uh, and then you asked me again about uh, about the uh, the harms from the lockdowns. Yeah,
0: what do we know? What do we know?
1: They're tremendous and we're just still just beginning to count them, right? So uh, domestically, for instance, I think there's now a broad consensus that the lockdowns harmed our children. Uh, for in many places, including California, children did not see the inside of a physical classroom for nearly a full year and a half. The consequences of that play themselves out with, deep learning losses, by the way, is concentrated on minorities and and poor populations who didn't have the wherewithal to replace the lost in in classroom learning. Um, But it, it plays itself out over a long period of time. The social science literature from before the pandemic had documented in detail about how valuable investments in education are for the health of children. If you deprive children of education for even short periods of time, it turns out, it leads to a lifetime of of lower income, worse health, even shorter lifespans. One estimate from uh, early in the pandemic, published in uh, by the one by the editor of JAMA Pediatrics, uh, found that that just the spring lockdowns in the United States alone cost our children five and a half million life years in expectation. That's yet to come, but it's coming. Um, uh, the the, the, uh, the toll on skipped cancer screenings, and all, again, m- starting to see it, but, it's, but it's, the full extent of it is yet to come. Um, in the poorer parts of the world, the consequences have been absolutely devastating. Something like 100 million people thrown into dire poverty, $2 a day or less of income. Uh, millions of people were-
0: India, Africa.
1: India, you 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 name the poor country, it har- you name the poor people in the poor poor country, the lockdowns harm them. Uh, the the estimates from the the uh, the World Food Program is that a uh, hundred million people were were put into f- dire food insecurity, near starvation. Uh, I mean, we haven't yet begun to count the deaths from that yet, uh, but it's going to be in the millions. And the uh, uh, children in poor countries, I'll just take Uganda as a good example of this. They don't have Zoom school. They just had no school for two years, unless, again, if they were in the laptop class, was relatively small number. Um, four and a half million Ugandan kids never came back to school after two years out of school. And it turns out many of them, especially the little girls, were sold into sexual slavery or, or uh, married off as, as child brides. Many the little boys were, were, were put into child labor. Their families were so poor that they had they faced this terrible choice between starving their, their kids or 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 prostituting them um, so we're we're in a i mean uh, in, in a situation where the harms of the lockdowns have become and are becoming clearer and clearer every day um, and the, the 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 benefits in terms of protecting people from covid it's becoming clear that they did none of that a million i think it was a 1.2 million people have died of covid in the united states you know nearly 7 million worldwide so those are the official estimates Um, I mean, what benefit did the lockdowns actually have?
0: All right. Let's go through the life of Doc J as this is taking place. Let's begin. In, In March 2020, as the lockdowns are being announced, you felt uneasy about them immediately. I know this because we're friends and we were talking about it. I had no idea what was happening and you said this, what's happening here is wrong. I think is wrong. You're actually quite scientific about it which leads me to the study that you conducted, the seroprevalence study that you conducted right here in Santa Clara County and the whole public health apparatus in the country is moving toward a lockdown. and. You, to my astonishment, I thought, well, you must be, there must be hundreds of these seroprevalence studies being done. And it turned out the one that you performed here in Santa Clara County with a couple of colleagues at the medical school was the first seroprevalence study ever conducted. And you discovered that the population was already much more infected with COVID than public health authorities had understood. I thought stopping by your office and chatting as we do, you will receive the thanks of a grateful nation. This is, these are serious findings. You didn't. What happened instead?
1: It's kind of a painful story. Um, so uh, that study, which uh, I was a senior author on in April of 2020, early April 2020, the first week uh, in Santa Clara County, we, we found that about three percent of Santa Clara County had antibodies already, um, and as you said, well, the, 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 w- there's a several implications. One is that uh, that 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 meant the mortality rate from the disease was much lower than people were saying. The World Health Organization already said that the mortality risk rate was like three or four percent. They're saying something co- technically something called a case fatality rate, right? The number of people that identified with COVID. Usually in the hospital back in that back in those days, uh, divided by the number of people uh, with with again you have the number of people died among that set, and then you get three or four percent. Right. That is a deeply misleading number. Three or four percent of people who get COVID do not die from COVID. That's just a lie. Um, the, the the and uh, what that seroprevalence study found was that it was 0.2 percent. So two out of a thousand. Now that's still a big number. It's not. It's not. It's not like it's not the flu. Um, and we also found a very, very steep age gradient. Children...
0: Oh, you had to pick that up in the seroprevalence. Yeah. I forgot. Go ahead. Mm-hmm.
1: Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so that, you know, children just didn't die at very high rates from COVID, especially healthy children, um, you know, one in a million I mean, on that order, uh, whereas older people had much higher rates of death from COVID. We found that, we saw that in the seroprevalence study. Um, it was much more widespread, I think 40 or 50 case in, in, p- infections. For every case that public health knew about at the time, and we found also that I mean, the other the third implication is that you know it's three percent, right? Very infectious disease. That means we still have a long way to go before the pandemic's over. Right. So those were the three implications of that study. Um, we found also we did a very similar study in in LA County the the next week after that, mm-hmm. and then another more nationwide study, less representative of Major League Baseball employees, uh, and uh, what we found in in LA was four percent infection uh, uh, of infection rate uh, the, pre- the prevalence of the infections. Four so percent of the LA county population, adult population, had evidence of having had COVID already and recovered. Um, the same exact infection fatality rate, and uh, I, and, this, and and so it, it was a it was a confirmation of that study, or ind- independent confirmation. And of by the, the way,
0: if I may add, in subsequent weeks and months, the findings of these studies would be confirmed. Again and again and again and again. A hundred plus
1: studies like right. this. Yeah, we found okay. exactly what we found. And so and
0: instead again. of thanks you received.
1: Okay, so um, at Stanford, at first there was a lot of of uh, a very. I mean, it was actually it was actually quite touching. A lot of people volunteered to help with the study. We put the study together in tw- in basically three weeks time. Um, We worked very closely with the Human Subjects Review Board at Stanford who helped us with the script make sure we protected the uh, the, the people that volunteered their their finger-picked blood, protected the people that were were, drawing drawing the blood and drawing the samples and so on. Um, And it was was actually, it felt quite good. It felt like a community coming together to do a very important bit of science so that the the, the world at large could learn more about this deadly deadly disease that that, that was floating around. When we first got the results of the study, when we first started coming in, that was when things really turned negative. Uh, there was, a, for instance, a, uh, a pathologist here at Stanford who wanted to make their own test kit, their antibody test kit. We, we had actually used a test kit that had been gifted to us by uh, some, some amazing folks who work with Major League Baseball on steroid testing. And he had gotten these test kits um, from, from a Chinese company, actually, working with, with, a, with an American affiliate, um, and he reached out to, to me after he saw a Wall Street Journal piece i had written in March of 2020, and said, "Look, I don't want to use these for Major League Baseball I'll make money. I want to use them for science. Can you can you use them for for science?" So it was. It felt really good. Uh, but there was, but the test kit itself had uh, you know just like any te- uh, medical apparatus has some error, false right. positives, false negatives. Um, there were and there was a lot of like a, a race among. Um, lab folks to create their own test kits, including here at Stanford, uh, and then you know market them. Um, we got an email from the the, patholo- the head of the pathology department, and then from the department of medicine, saying, "Well, people people are concerned about your test kit." Now we'd had actually a lot of uh, of, of uh, tests, independent labs that checked the validity of the test kit, and we found, uh, you know, because like a small error, 0.5% in the in the uh, in the false positive rate. Uh, but we had these statistical methods to adjust right, for this, right, right? So it was, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting statistical question, but it's not something that was going to re- invalidate the results of our study, which were published, by the way, in the in the International Journal of Epidemiology. Um, but but Stanford made us change, after the fact, made us change the protocols of the study. Uh, it was unprecedented. I mean, I've been a Stanford professor for, you know, 20-some years at that, up to that point. I've never s- seen or heard of Stanford forcing Professors to independently change the results or change the protocols of a of a study uh, after after the after the data collection had already been done um, b- because of the concerns of the pathologists and the and the medical school um, they they made us bring back okay just I'm, I'm sorry to do math on you Peter but get, let me just I have to do just a bit of math on. I'll go right ahead okay so I
0: because you have to explain what it means to change a protocol because I don't I don't understand I, so I'll explain okay, go specifically ahead. Right? right so we
1: have three thousand people that we sampled in Santa Clara County. 50 of them were positive. Now, we had to do some weighting because there was too many people from coming from richer parts than the poorer parts. That's how we got the, two, the 2.8% prevalence. But anyways, we had 50 out of 3,000 positive. Okay. Uh, Stanford made us bring those 50 people back in to the lab, even though that was part of our original protocol, and test them, bring, that means draw blood from them, uh, and uh, and have them tested using the pathologist test kit, rather than the test kit we used, on the premise that the pathologist test kit was completely accurate and ours was, you know, crap. Um, He found that of those 50, 35 out of those 50 were were positive on his test kit. Now, let's say his test kit is 100% accurate. Well, what that means is that we have 15 people that we identified as positive that he identified as negative. False positives, right? Right. 15 out of... Out of, so he sent an email around saying fifteen out of 50 false positives. thirty percent. Right. That's devastating. Like that means that you can't use that test kit. Everything we did was was terrible and wrong. The problem is the math. If you have 15 false positives if you have 15 false positives, it's not out of fifty, it's About out of three thousand, which is a 05 five percent error rate, which is exactly what you you knew the error rate going into it. Exactly. So uh, Stanford then, when we found this out, when I immediately noticed that the denominator was wrong. I pointed this out to the, to the folks at Stanford uh, the, in the medical school that were, that were te- forcing us to change our protocol, and they told us we were not allowed to tell the world about it at a time when people were questioning the accuracy of our test kit, the, 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 uh, the, the correctness of our study, and so on. Okay. There's
0: more to that story, but people will read that in the book that you're going to write sooner or later, if I have anything to do with it sooner. Let's move on from that prevalence study here at Stanford, which again, I repeat, first of all, it was your idea to be helpful. You noticed that no one had done one yet. You moved as quickly as you reasonably could. You came back with results that were valid and that were confirmed again and again and all right. The Great Barrington Declaration in October 2020, Again, I'm going to quote this from the Great Barrington Declaration, which you co-authored with two others whom I'll mention in a moment. As infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists, we have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies and recommend an approach that we call focused protection, close quote. Instead of shutting the country down, you focus on people who are at risk, particularly older people because of this age gradient you discovered. This is signed by Dr. J. Bhattacharya of Stanford, Dr. Martin Kuhldorf of Harvard, and Dr. Sunetra Gupta of Oxford. We now know that just four days after you published the Great Barrington Declaration, Dr. Francis Collins, director of NIH, wrote an email to Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of NIAID. Quote, this proposal from the three fringe Epidemiology, let me just repeat that, J. Bhattacharya of Stanford, Sunetra Gupta of Oxford, and Martin Kulldorff of Harvard. This proposal from the three fringe epidemiologists seems to be getting a lot of attention. There needs to be a quick and devastating published takedown of its premises, close quote. A week later, Dr. Collins spoke to the Washington Post about the Great Barrington Declaration, quote, this is a fringe component of epidemiology. This is not mainstream science. It's dangerous, close quote. Still later, Dr. Collins said on Fox News, quote, hundreds of thousands of people would have died if we had followed that strategy,
1: close quote. Jay,
0: what's going on here?
1: So uh, we wrote this Great Barrington Declaration in October of 2020. We'd already tried the lockdown in March and April of 2020, and the disease had come back. The, the, the effective implied promise is two weeks to flatten the curve, and then, then we can figure out what to do about the disease. Right. Um, on the basis, it turns out, of advice from people like Francis Collins and Tony Fauci, two uh, prominent government actors, including President Trump, um, the uh, the the lockdown strategy in part was a reaction to observations of what happened in China in January of 2020. Chinese... Locked down their their society, especially Wuhan and a Hubei province around it, and it and they, and American uh, bureaucrats like Tony Fauci looked at this and thought, okay, what well, the Chinese did worked. So we need to do it too. Um, now, th- these are tremendous. Wait, wait. How did they know that it worked? They
0: believe Chinese
1: data. Yes.
0: All right. Carry on.
1: Uh, so. The, so that would well that but they had already staked their reputations on this strategy and uh, why fringe epidemiology why would why would the head of the NIH go out of his way to to do this devastating takedown by the way the devastating takedown turned out to be a, a wired magazine article
0: that was the best they could produce
1: well i mean you see a response to that email that you cited tony, uh, tony Fauci tony Fauci's responded to to francis collins with with a, a wired magazine article pr- so very likely cooperate with with the with the anyways, it's All right. um, so the problem was that you had you had thousands and thousands of scientists, you know Stanford, Harvard, Oxford, saying that what they were doing, their strategy, was a mistake, that there was no scientific consensus in favor of their strategy.
0: and And by the way, when you say thousands and thousands of scientists, you put up the great Barrington Declaration online and invited anyone who wanted to associate himself with it to sign. And you did have thousands and thousands of signatures.
1: Tens of thousands of doctors and scientists and epidemiologists, including a Nobel Prize winner. I mean, so it wasn't, it wasn't actually a fringe idea. In fact, it was the standard policy for how to manage respiratory virus pandemics that we'd followed for a century. If you go back to March of 2020, you, will, you can see op-eds in the New York Times and Washington Post and elsewhere by leading epidemiologists that uh, it looks for all the world like the, the Great Barrington decoration. It's the least original thing I ever worked on in my entire life, Peter. Um, so uh, the the problem was for Tony Fauci and Francis Collins was that they they had to solve a PR problem. You have prominent scientists saying, "Look, what these guys are doing is not actually the right strategy." That normally should have led to a debate, a discussion, some sort of like conversation, but. Because if you're going to implement a policy as devastating as a lockdown, you actually need to have scientific consensus. It's not—it's not okay to say that there—that there's uh, that we we should lock the society down when only like part of scientists agree with it, especially when it's clear it didn't work in just a few More months amounts, earlier. That's right, um, and it, it was already clear that it caused a lot of damage a few months earlier. So. Uh, the they faced a PR problem. They had to they had to make us into fringe characters, fringe actors, destroy us, destroy our reputations. So they didn't have to have that debate. They they needed to create an illusion of scientific consensus that did not actually exist. All right. So we're not discussing
0: in that incident, we're not discussing science. We're discussing bureaucratic brutal bureaucratic politics.
1: Yeah, it's hu- it's hubris. All right.
0: Blacklisted on Twitter. You joined Twitter in 2021. Your first tweet, you link to a, an article that you had recently written on age-based risks, and you tweet, quote, mass testing, is locked down by stealth. Now, by the way, so very briefly, what's the argument there? What, what point were you making?
1: So, um, mass testing of children, mm-hmm. so that they stay out of school, right? So you test, you test. An asympt- uh, someone who's come in contact with a, chi- a child, and you keep them out of school for five, seven, however many days, until until you're certain the person, the, the, the kid's right. negative. Right. Essentially, that 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 essentially is a lockdown of that child, even though they're not actually at lower risk of spreading the disease in the population. Like, what does the kid do at home? What if it's a crowded home? Uh, what if you know? What if the kid's healthy? Do they not go outside and play with other kids? I mean. Uh, you had already from the spring of 2020 evidence from Sweden that first which kept schools for kids under 16 entirely open that you know not one child died that spring from covid and that the teachers were actually at lower risk of covid than the than the population of other workers at large they actually being around kids actually protected them in some sense um, because the kids are not super spreaders they actually are are less efficient spreaders than adults so you already had all that evidence So why are we testing to keep kids out of school? It just harms them with very little epidemiological benefit. All right. Thank you for that explanation.
0: So, um, and you continue to tweet. And then late last year, Elon Musk takes over Twitter. And the company releases internal emails and documents showing, among other things, that you had been intentionally censored. And not long after that, Elon Musk gets in touch with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and says, Come on up here to headquarters and take a look. I'd like you to see this with your own eyes. What did you see?
1: I mean, it was it was surreal, Peter. Um, so, so when um, when I joined Twitter, that was October you know, August twenty twenty one, and uh, uh, I I actually got a lot of followers. I mean, I had like two hundred thousand followers, I think, by the time. But stop I, rubbing it
0: in. I have twelve thousand.
1: I've tried to help you on Twitter, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, now the thing is, is like. The blacklist that they put me on was insidious, right? I could put a tweet out. I thought I was reaching... The, the purpose of my re- of going on Twitter isn't to reach people who already agree with me. The purpose of my going on Twitter was to tell other people who hadn't heard of my message or about lockdowns and so on, COVID policy, uh, that maybe disagreed with me to engage, to, to engage with them. The blacklist made sure that, that my tweets, my message never reached that audience. It only reached people that already followed That already me. followed you. Yeah. I see. So it was, it was just an insidious way of sort of keeping me in a box without my even knowing about it.
0: And Twitter was banning you on its own initiative or it was being prompted
1: to do so by outside? I I don't know that for certain about the blacklist, but I very strongly suspect that it was government actors that that had me on a blacklist. All right. Uh, I can give you some evidence for that so I don't sound too much like a a conspiracy theorist.
0: Uh, Give us a sentence or two of it. Yeah,
1: so like there's a lawsuit by uh, Missouri and Louisiana Attorney General's offices against the Biden administration where we've deposed Tony Fauci, we've deposed uh, aides to the Surgeon General, aides to to Jen Psaki, the former communication director of the White House. We found direct instructions and threats from the White House and many agencies within HHS, Health and Human Services, to Twitter and other social Facebook media companies. and so forth, right. Essentially threatening them unless they, unless they censored people and ideas that they didn't like. All right.
0: So here's what you put up. Here's what you tweeted after learning that you've been blacklisted. By the way, the term blacklist is politically incorrect in itself, but it, it's Twitter's term. They actually put you on a blacklist. All right. Quote, quoting you, the thought that will keep me up tonight, censorship of scientific discussion permitted policies like school closures and children were hurt. This is the story of your life during COVID beginning with a zero prevalence study. Shut up. Great Barrington Declaration, you're a fringy epidemiologist. Sit down and shut up. Twitter, if he
1: won't shut up, we're going to censor him.
0: Why? What were they thinking? They, they, this isn't the,
1: science? It's not science. Uh, I think that by, by 2021, we'd already had tremendous policies that, that kept kids out of school, that forced people to be vaccinated even though the evidence was that the vaccine doesn't stop transmission. You already harmed the lives of so many people. It's just inconvenient to have Stanford, Harvard, Oxford professors around saying it wasn't necessary. That there were other strategies that might have worked better, that might have protected people better without the collateral harm. That's the why. Um, the, the the. When I met with Elon, actually, it was surreal. Like I he uh, I I drove up uh, to go to toward headquarters in San Francisco. The whole way up, I'm thinking to myself, this trip cost Elon forty four billion dollars. <laughs> um, and I saw with my own eyes. It literally said blacklist. It they had their, they had a uh, they have a database called Jira, and it it they put me on this blacklist. I saw. Uh, Prominent media people asking for tweets of mine to be brought down, uh, for me to be censored. I mean, it was a a striking thing to to know that there were actors in the media environment uh, to to know from the Missouri versus Biden case in the the government who wanted to silence me.
0: All right. Um, Back, so, so, so now we come to what we ought to learn. What should we know and what, what should we do now? Three states. Here's a, There was a study of three states this spring by Paragon, the Paragon Health Institute. It used an index of state responses to COVID that were created at Oxford University. So you have an objective set of indexing. Illinois, for example, has an average score. California, which imposes imposed some of the harshest lockdowns, has a high score. Florida, which imposed lockdowns, but only very briefly and then opened up almost entirely has a low score. The finding, after adjusting for age and disease, quote, I'm quoting the study, all three states, high, medium, and low, California, Illinois, and Florida, all three states had roughly equal outcomes, suggesting that there was no substantial health benefit to more severe lockdowns. Florida, however, easily surpassed California and Illinois in educational and economic outcomes. The kids went to school, the economy remained open. That all sounds right to you? Yes. So again, the lockdowns were a mistake. I'm saying to you, you who, this is almost the wrong word to use for you because it's just so counter to your temperament and personality, but you campaigned against lockdowns throughout COVID. You have no reason to regret that.
1: No, I think that was the right thing to do. Uh, I'm not by nature, an activist. Um, I can I can attest to that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, every aspect of lockdown just fills me with, I, it just it just it it's, it has nothing to do with science. It has nothing to it. Just it's just where it's damaging to the poor. It's damaging to kids, in ways that public policy never ought to have done, and we did it out of out of ignorance and fear and hubris. Um, you know, uh, Sweden, the all cause excess deaths in Sweden is something like. Three percent. It's among the very, very lowest in all of Europe. In other words, and I mean, repeat: Sweden did not lock down. Sweden did not lock School down. Schools stayed open. Very the economy famously. continued to function. Yeah, and and they they have lower mortality than lockdown Germany, lockdown UK, uh, lockdown France. They lo- even lockdown. I think they they've now surpassed, surpassed Finland and Norway. Um, I mean, they're, 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 it's it's almost no excess deaths. Imagine that. Imagine if we'd followed a policy like Sweden, we could have avoided all the harms to our children. We could have avoided all the all of the all of the suffering caused by the, the lockdowns, the, the, the closed businesses, the unemployment, all of that, the economic harm where you know we spent trillions of dollars. The inflation as a consequence of the lockdowns, okay. and still protected our our people better from COVID. So the question now is, how do we how do we do better
0: next time around? Commission, here's an idea, Jay Bhattacharya with Martin Kulldorff writing in the Wall Street Journal in June of 2021. This is almost two years ago. The first step to restoring the public's trust in scientific experts is an honest and comprehensive evaluation of the nation's pandemic response. Senators Bob Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey, and Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, have introduced a bill that would establish a COVID Commission close quote. Now there's a good idea, a bipartisan COVID commission. What has the commission found?
1: So they're actually meeting today uh, to report the results. It's a whitewash, right? It it, it, it doesn't mention the possibility of focused protection. Uh, it, I mean, in effect, you can kind of get a sense of how the establishment that imposed the lockdowns is treating this. They, they have a once in a generation opportunity to actually do it a... An honest introspection and reform the processes that led to this public policy disaster. Instead, they're giving awards to Tony Fauci. Instead, they're they're uh, patting themselves on the back, tell, t- saying that what they did was n- absolutely necessary. Um, I, I think uh, they're, they're blaming they're blaming, for instance, uh, the, the the disaster on misinformation. Right. So all, all, I, I think the the head of the FDA. Uh, Caliph just did a did a uh, interview with with some public radio station saying that misinformation is the number one cause of death. Um, It's it is a it is irresponsible in the extreme. But I don't I I mean it's it's and and depressing to watch right because I I think the problem is like um, if you don't have an honest evaluation of what happened and the disaster that happened we will this will happen again Peter right okay.
0: The lawsuit, you mentioned this lawsuit a moment ago. The attorneys general of Louisiana, Missouri, and other states have brought suit against the Biden administration for censoring social media during the pandemic. You've joined the suit. Uh, Let me quote for a moment from the testimony of John Sawyer, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Special Assistant Attorney General for Louisiana. This is testimony he gave to the Senate Judiciary Committee this past March. By the way, Sawyer is a graduate of Notre Dame Harvard Law School and Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. So we're not talking about a crank here. This is from his testimony, quote, what we discovered, and excuse me, he's talking about the discovery process that you mentioned a moment ago. People have been deposed, emails have been examined and so forth.
1: What we obtained was astonishing, staggering and horrifying. A veritable army of federal officials pressures, threatens, coerces, colludes with, demands, and deceives social media platforms to censor online speech.
0: You experienced that. Has this, I'm just asking you now, as a normal consumer, you're not a normal consumer of news. You're a normal consumer of news, but in recent months, you've become especially attuned to news about matters such as this. Has that testimony, has your lawsuit received the kind of attention that it feels it should, do, it, it merits?
1: I think this is the most important First Amendment case since Pentagon Papers 50 years ago. Uh, and it's received almost no attention from the news, news media. And it's actually kind of shocking, right? Because it's, it's the news media that, that, in principle, ought to be standing up for free speech. Right, right.
0: OK, the political system. The lockdowns are largely, we've talked about Fauci and Collins who are federal officials, but the lockdowns are largely a matter of state law and in many states, including our state of California, the state tends to defer to county health officials. So the lockdowns are largely imposed by county and state officials. And now some 20 states have enacted laws that curtail the powers of those health officials. The laws vary a little bit from state to state, but they require public health officials to narrow the scope of their actions to achieve specific health purposes. They call for expedited judicial review of such actions, and they ensure that actions will automatically expire after a certain period of time. Okay. Um, Is that a good idea?
1: Yes. I think the problem is that uh, what happened is is you have the CDC, which issues guidance. You have the NIH, which, which issues you know, proclamations from on high, I guess, of, of who's fringe and who's not, um, and uh, the local state of, and state officials essentially respond as if it were holy writ. It's not formal regulation that's been subject to the, you know public comment or whatever. It's just a CDC guidance. You know, they tell you not to eat sushi during when you're pregnant or something, and usually people are f- feel free to ignore it. But during the pandemic, these kinds of guidances were used in court cases to defend indefensible things, lockdowns, uh, closures of businesses that had no real justification in, in terms of reality. It's and, just... And the other
0: point, the point of view from, from the point of view of the political system, almost from the point of view of political theory, there are over 2,000, I think just short of 3,000 counties in this country. Uh, this varies a little bit from state to state, but most counties have a public health official and in most cases, that public health official is appointed, not elected. Most people have never even heard of them and suddenly it emerges that they have, I was about to say dictatorial powers. I'm going to stick with dictatorial powers. You have to live a certain way because they say so and, and there's no redress. Okay, so these, these state laws are a good idea. Does it bother you that it's only 20 states and does it bother you that almost all, of I think all of the 20 states almost all, let me stick with that, are run by Republicans, that there's now a partisan divide in the response to these lockdowns.
1: It's a disaster, Peter. It's a disaster that it's become uh, a partisan thing. Public health, when it is partisan, is a, is a failed public health. It's not like politics. You can't just win 50% plus one and say you've done a successful job in public health. You need 95% of the public to agree with you, to, to honor and respect what you're saying. Uh, or else you failed, trust what you're saying, or else you failed, because public health is for everybody. It's not a partisan issue. The fact that it is partisan, I mean, I, I'm in favor of the laws, but I wish that those laws were extended to the rest of the states. I think it actually would help public health, because then at that point, then public health officials couldn't act as, di- as dictators. They would have to reason with the public and tell the public, look, here's the, re- here's the evidence for why we're asking you to do this. And if they're persuasive, the public would agree. This is what happened in Sweden. In Sweden, like 95% of people trust Swedish public health because they were honest about their mistakes, honest about their reasoning. They treated adults like adults. All right. So, Jay,
0: <clears throat> if I could make you a dictator for a day, I've just been... <laughs> but what... What do you want to see happen? We've talked about there's a lawsuit. It's not getting the attention it deserves. There are laws. They're good as far as they go, but it's only 20 states, and there's it's Im- brought into view a partisan divide. This just seems you have the magnitude of these lockdowns, which damaged millions of people and did very little good. And the response seems puny, insigni- certainly
1: insufficient. What? What could still be done? Well, first, don't make me dictator for a day. That's a, that would be a mistake. Um, but I, I think, that, um, I, I think that, that, that the response is coming. It's not, it's not done yet. It's, it's unfortunate that, that we haven't had the, the, the honest evaluation. But I, the, the extent of harm to people is so much that it demands a political response. And I think that political response will happen. What form it'll take, I don't know. You're the, you're the political expert. But it, uh, the, the expression of the people that were harmed by the lockdowns, the expression of the people that were harmed by COVID, the fact that public health did not actually end up protecting people, ended up harming people, that demands a political response, which I think will inevitably come. All right. A
0: few final questions, Jay. Holman Jenkins in The Wall Street Journal quote, the world inevitably will face new respiratory viruses. There seems to be no good reason why nature would afflict us with a disease that spreads as easily as the flu or COVID and is significantly more deadly, but neither can that be ruled out. Are we ready for the next pandemic?
1: We're gonna lock down again with the next pandemic, guaranteed, at, at the, with the current sort of configuration of power in public health and politics stands, that is a, uh, that, that we will respond by by saying, look, the lockdown is the only way. And just and just as it happened in 2020, it'll be the laptop class that'll benefit and the poor and the vulnerable and children who will be harmed.
0: All right. We've been talking about lockdowns, but briefly, if I could ask you what we know about other aspects of the response, just briefly, if we, if you could take us through these. Masking. February of this year, the Cochrane Library conducted what it seems to be the most rigorous study of the literature on masking, at least it's the most rigorous of which I'm aware. The conclusion, quote, we are uncertain whether wearing masks or N95 respirators helps to slow the spread of respiratory viruses based on the studies we assessed, close quote. We are uncertain? The lead author of the study, the Oxford epidemiologist, Tom Jefferson, put it more bluntly, quote, there is just no evidence that masks make any difference, full stop, close quote. That sounds right to you? Yes. We were all told we couldn't go into a store, we couldn't go to church, we couldn't leave our homes unless we had a mask, and Uh, they make no difference.
1: There have been now, before the pandemic, there were something like a dozen randomized studies on masking and and the prevention of of spread of influenza. Three randomized studies during the pandemic on COVID. And all of them uh, have either find no effect or have trouble finding any effect at all, or, or if they find effect, it's a tiny, tiny effect. Okay, All right. so
0: here's what I think is some good news. The vaccines, Dr. Fauci, this is last summer, even though vaccines don't protect particularly well against infection, oops, we thought they did, but they don't. They do protect quite well against severe disease leading to hospitalization and death, close quote. That bit we got right, correct?
1: Yes, I think so.
0: The vaccines, we did have this project, what was it called, Project Lightspeed or?
1: Operation Warp Speed.
0: Warp Speed, Warp Speed. I'm a little vague on the Star Trek terms, but Operation Warp Speed, the government got that right. That was one place where the government mobilized resources and we got it right. They don't protect against infection, but they do help keep you alive if you get it,
1: right? Yeah, so I think, I think that that's true, uh, but there's some nuances that are very important there. So first, if you've had COVID and recovered, yes, it's, it's, I'm not, I don't know how big an effect improvement there is in the... Re- uh, so you're, you already have pretty, pretty good protection against severe disease and death Natural or reinfection. Immunity. Yeah, right. if you've had COVID recovered. The, the, the vaccines, they might help a little, but not as much as if you're completely immune naive. Second, uh, it's going to have a much bigger benefit for older people than for young people. For young people, the risk of death is very low to begin with. Um, third, there are some side effects from the vaccine, like especially young men and myocarditis. So, it's not necessarily wise just because it reduces death that automatically everyone should automatically get it. Okay, so this brings, up,
0: brings us to the question of the mandates. Um, they varied from state to state, but we do know that all federal workers were required to get vaccinated to keep their jobs. We know that at this moment, as we sit here recording this, foreign visitors are not allowed into the United States without proof of vaccination. Did these mandates make sense?
1: No. Uh, so just as a matter of, of, of policy and economics, if my vaccine only matters for whether I die from if I get COVID, well, then it's a personal medical decision, right? Right. Uh, if my vaccine protects you against COVID, then, then there might be some public policy around sort of inducing me to get the vaccine. So a necessary condition for the mandates to be right is that the vaccine stop transmission. And they did They don't. It's after two months, the, the pr- protection against infection drops pretty sharply. I personally, when I got, was vaccinated in April of 2021, four months later, I got COVID. Um, I think that's the experience of many, many people that have been vaccinated. The, vac- the vaccines d- only protect you against getting COVID for a very short period of time.
0: And they don't prevent you from passing it on.
1: That's correct. All right. OK,
0: Jay, this brings us to my last set of questions. And they concern you. We've known each other for a long time and I can testify that before COVID you were completely happy with the quiet life of a man totally devoted to academia, to his research, to his students. You were one of the happiest men I knew. I can also testify that the stress of what you went through took a personal toll on you. You lost 20 pounds. There were plenty of us who were very worried about you. And by the way, while I'm testifying about offering myself as a character witness, you served as an expert witness in any number of trials. You've now spoken at different conferences and events. And I'm delighted that you've made so much money. You have refused any payment whatsoever as an expert witness. No speaking fees. Zero.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't feel right taking money for, uh, for my COVID work. Okay.
0: But here you are, Jay, in at least a modest way, you're famous. I've been with you in an airport when people stopped and recognized you. You have over 400,000 followers on Twitter now. What are you going to do with this platform? What's next? COVID happened. You did what you could. You were largely ignored, honestly. What's next for you?
1: Well, I think uh, I really want to see the reform of public health happen. So I've been working um, on, the, for, for instance, like I just did this document. wrote this document with some of several, several of my friends called the Norfolk Group Blueprint, and it's a, it's a, it's a blueprint for what an honest COVID commission would would do. What what it would ask, the questions it would ask. So I'm going to work very hard on that. Um, I. I'm not so... I am mean I'm, I'm still would like to be a scholar. Uh, I, I still am interested in some of the research questions. I think it's very clear from how scientific institutions responded to COVID that science is fundamentally broken. Um, and so I'm going to work with uh, this group that I helped found called the Academy of Science and Freedom to help uh, to, to, to bring reform to science. Um, I think we have a I mean, I think I think Martin Couldor put it well. Uh, d- during COVID, it felt like science had entered a dark age, even though there were all these like advances. At the same time, you you you, you couldn't say something that, uh, that that the powers that be, the high clarity of science, like Tony Fauci or Francis Collins, uh, you couldn't contradict them without being excommunicated. It felt like the dark age. Um, we can't actually have scientific institutions operate that way and still have uh, public confidence in science. Uh, or, or expect science to produce the kinds of advances it has. So I'm going to work toward toward reform of scientific institutions so those kinds of things don't happen again.
0: Uh, if you had a last sentence to offer, I'll, I'll give you being you, I'll give you a, a paragraph. Suppose we have a picture a college student, you have college-age children yourself. Picture a college student, who understands because he or she went through it, universities closed, or students were permitted in dorm rooms but not to attend classes, all of that. What do they need to understand about science and the way this country works? What what uh, young people, their lives will move on, they'll put the pieces back together as fast as best they can and, and get on with it. What's the one, what's the one large idea that you'd like people to take to to, to really grasp,
1: Peter? I think that that the uh, it's it's some young person harmed by our COVID response that will write the, the last word the history of this, and they will judge our generation as among the selfish most selfish in history. Um, I think uh, th- I hope that they also look and see the the promise and uh, and fecundity of, of the scientific method. Of of free speech of li- of liberal go- liberal governance, I think people, I think young people, and actually, I hope not just young people, like everybody, within a short period of time will look back and say, "Why did we? Why did we jettison those? Those were really productive ideas. We should we should make sure our institutions support those ideas." Um, that's my hope. I you know I, I you I often get accused of being overly optimistic, but I think I'm right on this. You are overly optimistic, Jay.
0: Um, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford Medical School and the Hoover Institution, thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.